cold blood, Nordic true crime, the murder in the woods. On a summer evening in 1981, in a small Danish village in the northern part of Jutland, a 16-year-old girl goes missing. Four days later, she was found in a nearby forest hanged by a rope tied to a tree. Her body was partially covered by branches and sticks. There were no clues that could indicate a potential suspect or the motive. The story includes descriptions of violence and sexual assault that some listeners may find distressing. It's Sunday, the 12th of July, 1981. At about 3 p.m., a pensioner, Soren Olsen, calls the police station in Randers. He reports that his 16-year-old daughter, Kirsten, has gone missing. She was last seen on the 11th of July, between 8 and 9 p.m. That's when she left her parents' house and rode her bike to a village three kilometers away to visit one of her friends. Soren says that shortly before calling the police, he found Kirsten's bike and bag on the grass on the way home from their house to the house of her friend. He was afraid Kirsten might have had an accident or fallen victim to a crime. A police patrol is immediately sent to the Olsen's house. The officers prepare a report on the conversation, after which they want to search the place where the man found his daughter's bike. She rode her bike to a friend's house and was supposed to stay there overnight. The girls wanted to prepare a more detailed plan for a short trip they had been talking about for a long time. On Saturday, at noon, Kirsten's friend calls Soren and asks why Kirsten hadn't come over as they'd planned. The man immediately got into his car and went to look for his daughter. Soren found Kirsten's bag and bike on the way to her friend's house. He took both items, returned home, and called all of Kirsten's friends and acquaintances to see if she was staying with one of them. He also called the boarding house in Greinar, as Kirsten lived there during the week and went to the local gymnasium. Soren also tried to contact his daughter's boyfriend, Hans Jensen, from Randers. He didn't succeed immediately. When the boy finally answered the phone, Soren was only told that Kirsten wasn't at his place either. She had spent Saturday with him at Randers. At about 6.15pm, Hans had given her a lift to Grenavai Street, which leads to Kristrup, and dropped her off. Kirsten wanted to hitchhike the rest of the way home. There were a few things in her bag, a purse with money, a passbook, various documents, a vanity case, and some clothes. Everything is drenched after the night's downpour, so her father hangs the bag and its contents to dry. The police immediately start searching for Kirsten. Police officers from the Special Criminal Division, together with sniffer dogs and the remaining law enforcement officers, are assigned to the case. Even the higher-ranking officers join the search, checking the entire area near the place where the bag and the bike were found. They are afraid Kirsten might have fallen victim to a crime. Police officers from the Aarhus Criminal Division are sent to her house to examine the lost girl's bike and bag. The sniffer dogs check both items, ready to pick up the trail at the spot where the bike was found and to look for further clues. But the dogs don't pick up any trails at the scene. They don't find any clues that confirm a crime might have been committed. Furthermore, no fingerprints are found on the bike. The police discover something near the place where the bike was found, a car decorating strip. Further analysis reveals that the strip was left there after an accident that happened a week earlier. 
A military flight also takes part in the search using helicopters, and together with a police officer, they search the area from above. Unfortunately, that doesn't bring any results either. Near the woods and Kirsten's house, there is a lawn that is used as a car park, where investigators discover deep tire tracks. There's a shooting range right next to the car park, and it later turns out that the tracks have a logical explanation, which have nothing to do with Kirsten's disappearance. So the investigators dismiss them. The criminal division officers question Kirsten's neighbors and all the village residents. On the evening she went missing, her parents weren't at home. Her mother, Anna Olsen, was working as a waitress at a large birthday party in the village hall, located on the other side of the street. The girl's father was visiting his friends in a nearby village. Kirsten's younger siblings were playing with the neighbor's kids near the house. Some of the children, including Kirsten's own siblings, had seen someone giving Kirsten a lift home in a red car. It was between 8 p.m. and 9 p.m. Kirsten got out of the car and it drove off. The girl went to the village hall on the other side of the street and had a quick chat with her mother through the open kitchen window. She then went home, took her bike, and rode towards Toslu, where her friend lives. On Sunday, the investigators contact the press and radio to share the information about the girl's disappearance. Late in the evening, the search is coming to an end. Since the missing girl hasn't been found, police officers from a special mobile unit from Copenhagen join the investigation. The unit arrives at the local police station on Monday the 13th of July. They also call out to the driver of the red car, asking them to come forward and report to the police. Kirsten was a pretty and athletic young girl who was well-liked among her friends and colleagues. She'd had a few short-lived relationships with boys her age, but had been dating Hans Jensen from Randers for the last three months. Hans is a farmer's son, and their farm is near where Kirsten grew up, so Kirsten and Hans have known each other since childhood. Kirsten lived in Huring, a small old village in the northern part of Jutland, the Danish mainland. It's located 35 kilometers east of Randers and about 1.5 kilometers south of a beach near the Ketikat, an area of sea off the Jutlandic peninsula. At the time, the village of Huring has about 200 residents and they all know each other. Aside from simple country houses, there are a few farms with relatively high-density housing in the village. North of Huring, there is a military area with a shooting range, training ground and several military buildings. The area is also full of vast, dense forests, which are practically inaccessible to humans. But here and there, you can come across a narrow forest path or small moor. The evening of the 11th of July is hot. The last two weeks had been extremely dry, but it finally looked like it was going to rain. Several storms came in the evening, and at about 9pm a gale was accompanied by a downpour and thunder. Black clouds hang low in the sky. The entire area was enveloped in darkness, and the storm caused multiple power failures in the neighbourhood. In a couple of towns in the region, the rainfall was so heavy that parts of the lower areas were flooded. Thanks to this stormy weather, everyone who is questioned clearly remembers what they were doing that evening and what caught their attention. 
a more extensive search begins on Monday the 13th of July. Eight police officers from the criminal division in Randers and 112 members of the special mobile unit carefully investigate the case. They cooperate on all stages of the investigation, including questioning the residents of Hearing and anyone else that could be important to the case. It's a lot of work, but there have been no noticeable results yet. The police from Randers are also searching for Kirsten. The officers use the help of their sniffer dogs and police dogs from Aarhus to search the entire area thoroughly. The big forest areas are also searched with help from the military. A command center is formed in the town to better coordinate the investigation in the area. Local residents join the search as well. They are shocked by the girl's disappearance and are leaning towards the explanation that a crime must have been committed. But was it kidnapping? Rape? Or something worse? Murder? On Friday the 10th of July, Kirsten was visiting her boyfriend, Hans, in Randers. They celebrated his birthday in the evening, and then she spent the night and most of Saturday at his place. Hans was expecting guests from Lolland Island to arrive in the morning. That's why Kirsten decided it would make no sense for him to drive her all the way to Huring. And besides, she was meeting a friend to plan a trip to southern Jutland together. The girls were going to set off the following Monday. When Kirsten said goodbye to her boyfriend, everything was fine between them. She just didn't want to cause him any trouble, and she thought that there was no need to waste time and fuel just to drive her home. So they decided Hans would give her a lift only to the outskirts of Randers. She was going to hitchhike the rest of the way, as she had done many times before. When Kirsten said goodbye to her boyfriend, she was sad, but only because they wouldn't see each other for a long time during the summer holidays. After saying goodbye to Hans, Kirsten got out of the car and went on her way. Hans drove back to Randers. Kirsten had her glasses on and was wearing a white and blue striped t-shirt, blue Adidas shorts, and black velvet shoes. She was carrying her belongings in a blue cloth bag. Many witnesses saw her walking out of Grenovai Street on the right side of the road. The witnesses say she didn't try to stop any of the cars driving by. Drivers who had noticed her walking contact the police and are questioned. A farmer was the last person who saw her there, walking towards Fousing at about 8.15 p.m. Later, Kirsten was seen getting out of a red car that had stopped near her house in Huring. Several children were playing in the street and noticed the car, describing its color as red or orange. They are not so unanimous when it comes to the vehicle's size and looks, so many car models are considered during the investigation. The driver was apparently a man, 30 to 35 years old. The police are looking for him, and he is asked to come forward and contact them. But the man doesn't appear at the police station. When asked where the car came from and where it went, the children give different answers. Two young girls claim they saw the car slowly following Kirsten when she went to Tarslu a while later. Another girl says that on Saturday evening at about 8.50pm, when she was riding her bike from Huring, she saw a zigzagging red or orange car pass her and then pull over onto the right lane in front of her. A moment later, the same car passed her again, driving in the opposite direction. She saw only one person inside, the driver, 
a man approximately 30 years old. The girl described the car paint as matte, which made its hue really stand out, and she's certain she would be able to recognize it. The car drew her attention because of the man's strange driving style. Two brothers, aged about 60, contact the police and say they would like to testify as witnesses. That evening, between 8.30 and 9pm, they were driving from Hüring to Taaslu. Both brothers claimed that on the way they saw a van parked in the spot where Kirsten's bike was found later. They agree that it was a light commercial vehicle, blue or olive green, with a flat vertical rear. They say the van was parked on the grass with its front towards Totslu, on the right side of the road. One of the brothers also noticed a man, about 35 years old, standing near the right car door facing the greenery. The same witnesses drove by that spot again the very same evening. This time, they noticed a woman's bike lying in the grass about two meters away from the hard shoulder, near the place where the car had been parked earlier. On Wednesday the 15th of July, 1981, at about 1 p.m., four days after Kirsten went missing, the police find the body of a teenage girl. She's found in a desolate area near the Lottenholm Woods, hanged from a tree with a rope that someone had tightened around her neck. What's unusual is the way she's been hanged. The girl's legs and lower part of her torso are lying on the ground, while her chest and shoulders are about 25 centimeters above the ground. The noose around her neck is made of washing line, about 5 millimeters in diameter. The other end of the line is fixed to the tree trunk with a triple clove hitch, about 1.5 meters above the ground. The girl is identified quickly. It's Kirsten Olsen. After the technicians secure all traces at the site where her body was found, she is transported to the Forensic Medicine Institute in Aarhus for an autopsy. The criminal division officers and Forensic Medicine Institute personnel examine the girl's clothes and the spot where the body was found, looking for evidence. They find plant parts and various seeds on the girl's clothes and on the ground. The samples are handed over to the Forensic Institute and then to the Botany Institute for a more thorough analysis. The place where the body was found is located near a small forest road, about 75 meters into a densely covered forested area. Kirsten's body had been hanging there since the crime had been committed, partially covered with sticks and branches. The girl was only wearing a t-shirt that was pulled up and not covering her breasts. Her shorts were found in a pile of leaves about three meters away. She was still wearing her velvet shoes. About 50 meters away from her, the investigators found her glasses in perfect condition. The girl's right hand was behind her back in an unnatural position, as if someone had dragged her body, holding her by the shoulder. The investigators find nothing in the spot where the body was found that could indicate who the perpetrator is. It certainly looks like a sexual offense was the motive. The autopsy reveals many small wounds on Kirsten's body. Some of them are insect bites, but others might have been inflicted by the culprit during the crime. Aside from the mark on her neck left by the hanging, there are also effusions that suggest the rope washing line was put around her neck higher 
and then tightened. There's also a large bruise under her chin. It could have been caused by someone attacking her with the rope from behind or hitting her with a fist. The investigators focus on the clues hinting where and when Kirsten was seen for the last time. Some of the information mentions the red car that supposedly drove her home. There are also mentions of a light commercial vehicle seen at the spot where the girl's bike was found, as the van might belong to the culprit. Over 2,000 people are questioned during the investigation. The police chief from Rounders sends a written message to over 3,000 households in the region. It contains a description of the crime, along with a date and time, and the description of the cars that might be connected to the crime, especially the van seen at the spot where the bike was found. There's even a reward of 10,000 kroner, about 1,200 pounds, for the person who can share some information that would help to explain what happened. The police also interrogate known criminals who have been sentenced for rape or other sex-related crimes. Police in Copenhagen share data of potential perpetrators from their database with the criminal division in Randers. The data references 25 people who have committed sex-related crimes. All those people are visited and questioned, and their cars are identified. The investigators check where those people were at the time the crime was committed. Many of them have no alibi, so they're checked because of well-founded suspicions that they might have committed the crime. When the former criminals are questioned, another witness comes forward, and he says one of those people owns a red or orange Opel Record car. At the time the crime was committed, the suspect, together with his family, was on a campsite at the shore, a few kilometers northeast of where the body was later found. The suspicious man is questioned on Friday, the 30th of July, about 20 days after Kirsten went missing. It's Peter Sorensen, who is 34 years old. Sorensen lives in a large and recently built house in a village north of Randers. He is married to Elsa Sorensen, and they have a two-year-old child. He's also raising Elsa's ten-year-old daughter from her first marriage. He's detained when he's coming home from work, driving his red Opal record. He's brought to the police station in Randers together with his car and questioned. His car is treated like all other vehicles that could be important for the investigation. Forensic technicians take photos before it is thoroughly examined. All recovered microtraces are vacuumed into small plastic bags and sent to the laboratory for analysis. When asked where he went camping, Sorensen says that at the time the crime was committed, he was at the campsite with his family. They had bought a pitch for their caravan at that campsite and often spend their weekends and summer holidays there. But he denies he had anything to do with Kirsten's murder. He claims that on Saturday the 11th of July, after dinner, he went fishing alone at his usual fishing spot at the Nordstrand Beach. There were only a few other people at the beach, likely tourists, as their car had a German number plate. Around 9pm, it started raining, so he went back to his car to return to the campsite. When he reached the car, he was drenched. So after coming back to the caravan, where his family was waiting for him, he had to change. They watched TV, drank coffee, and played cards, then later went to sleep. Before interrogating Peter Sorensen, the police went to his flat to question his wife Elsa too. 
her testimony more or less matched Peter's. She said that her husband had come back around 9.20pm. He'd been soaking wet and had to change, but he hadn't caught any fish, which had seemed odd. Elsa added that sometime after the murder in Hearing, Peter had taken his car to the garage to get the tyres changed. She didn't know anything more about it because she didn't know a lot about cars in general and wasn't able to say if changing the tyres had been necessary. Elsa's testimony gives Peter an alibi, so he's released and gets his car back. The only thing Peter said about changing the tyres was that they had been worn out and had to be changed. The police measure all the distances and travel times. Based on that, they decide Peter Sorensen couldn't have committed the crime as he couldn't have crossed the distance between the two places in the estimated time. The new findings don't help in the investigation and disappoint the officers, especially because Peter's criminal past makes him a perfect suspect. The police learn that Sorensen used to be a sailor, so he knows a lot about ropes and tying knots. In March 1979, Peter Sorensen was released from jail on the condition that he would take Andrew Cure injections every 14 days. The treatment was supposed to quiet his sex drive. He adheres to the conditions, and because his wife confirms his alibi for the night of the murder, he's not put on the list of suspects. The investigators now focus on the blue or olive green van. It turns out that there's another person with a criminal record living in the area. It's a man who owns a yellow estate car that might match the witnesses' descriptions. Various clues suggest this man might be the culprit. He has a criminal record and doesn't have an alibi for the night when the crime was committed. It's worth mentioning that in such small communities, rumors travel fast. This time is no different, and the rumors say this man behaved strangely on the day the crime was committed and for several days after. This is why many people are convinced he's the murderer. But the rumors don't concern only that man. Made-up stories spread with lightning speed, and many different people are considered potential suspects. While the villagers gossip, the special mobile unit and the local police question more people. Even though the local residents from the entire region do everything they can to help the police, new information about the case stops emerging. It is decided that there's no solid evidence that would allow them to identify the perpetrator. The police decide to pay another visit to Elsa, Peter's wife, a month after they first questioned her. The woman repeats her earlier testimony without adding anything new. She also says that she would never cover up for Peter if he'd really committed that terrible crime. At that point, there's no reason to continue investigating him. But there's one thing that still needs explaining. The investigators finally manage to find and question Peter Sorensen's car mechanic. He admits that a few weeks after the murder in Hearing, Peter had told him to change the tires on his car. After Peter delivered four studded tires to him, the studs were removed and the tires were put on. The old tires are somewhere in his garage, and after the interrogation, the tires are carefully examined by the police. They're not so worn that changing them was really necessary. There's no good explanation for changing the tires, except that Peter Sorensen wanted to have a different set of tires on his car. The police find that suspicious. 
But because no tire tracks have been found in any places related to the crime, investigating this lead further is not possible. About two weeks after Kirsten's body was found, the investigators received the first findings from the examination carried out by colleagues from the criminal division. Evidence recovered from the locations related to the crime are still being analyzed by the criminal division. Some of the samples were handed over to the Forensic Medicine Institute, others were given to the biology department, and some to the isotope laboratory, nowadays known as Force Technology. Some of the samples were even sent to the Geology Institute. It turns out that the rope used as the murder weapon was just a common nylon line that's available in every household store. Different kinds of residue were found on the rope, including algae, but these residues weren't unique to a single location. There's one thing that the analysis confirmed without a doubt. The perpetrator is experienced in tying knots. The line was partially burnt and sealed at both ends. There's a partial fingerprint near one of those spots, but it's not suitable for identification. The Forensic Medicine Institute personnel didn't find any traces of semen on Kirsten's body or at the crime scene. They tried to secure the material found under her nails, but failed as the nails had been bitten short. No fingerprints for the perpetrator were found anywhere. However, there was another clue found in the same place as the body, in the undergrowth, a shoe print of an adult man. Since it was a shoe of a certain brand, it was compared to the shoes of the person who had found Kirsten and the shoes of the policeman working at the site, but the investigators weren't able to determine whose print it was. The criminal division also examines Kirsten's shoes carefully. It turns out there are undergrowth remains on the sole of one of them, which indicates that she walked into the forest. The investigators are also able to determine that it started raining before the girl went there. The second shoe had been lying with its sole up, so any traces that might have been there were washed away by the rain. The most irritating thing is that despite so many clues, there's nothing to indicate a potential culprit. But the technicians are optimistic, since they're still waiting for the results of the lab tests. At the Forensic Medicine Institute, all the material from Kirsten's body, her clothes, and the sheet she was wrapped in is vacuumed and secured. The recovered material is then sent to the Botany Institute for further analysis. The samples contain many different plant traces, including spruce and pine needles and leaf fragments. A thorough analysis reveals the presence of various types of plants from the birch and amaranth families, as well as pale smartweed. Human and dog hair are also found, but they're not suitable for analysis because they have no roots to test. An expert from the Botany Institute responsible for the analysis accompanies the police to the place where the body was found. It's clear that there's no pale smartweed, saltbush or goosefoot in the forest area where Kirsten was found, meaning the seeds must have been brought there from somewhere else. None of these plants grow in the place where Kirsten's bike was found either. The experts are ordered to compare all plant samples with the material recovered from the cars that were examined. When Peter's car, 
which hasn't been cleaned in a while, is vacuumed to secure the micro-traces, many things are found. Plant fragments, seeds, sand, grass, and hair. The seeds belong to many plant species, including pale smartweed, saltbush, and goosefoot. Comparative analysis reveals that the pale smartweed seeds recovered from Kirsten's body match the pale smartweed seeds found in Peter's car. In both cases, they are one-year seeds, showing similar traces of mechanical wear, as if they had been in the same place, maybe on the car floor or another spot where they had been stepped on. This could be a coincidence, but that seems impossible. Still, no scientist will say in court that this is solid evidence. The special unit finishes their investigation in October 1981, handing the case supervision over to the local police. The investigation will be continued. But it's been three months since the crime was committed, and there's no new information in this case that would need verifying. It means that other, more recent cases are given priority for the time being. Tune in to the next episode to see if there have been some developments in this story. Or if it has remained a cold case, unsolved. From Podimo, this was Cold Blood, Nordic True Crime. A new episode every week, wherever you get your podcasts. For early access to episodes or to listen ad-free, subscribe to Podimo on Apple Podcasts.